unfortunately that that's the gung-ho attitude that sometimes um founders have towards yeah. their towards their ip so like, we'll worry about that later we just need to get it to market now and that could be very very costly Hello and welcome to the Brandtune podcast, which discusses all things brand related, including the essential trademark and IP dimension. I'm your host, Shireen Smith, IP lawyer, brand manager, and author of Brandtune, the new rules of branding, strategy, and intellectual property. So welcome to the Brandtune podcast, James. James Church is the co-founder and chief operating officer, is that right? Of Robot Massive, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the UK's leading pitch agency. He's also the author of the best-selling book, Investable Entrepreneur. Uh, something I find very interesting also about James, which we'll discuss during the podcast, is that he has both a background in graphic design, having taken a degree in it, and also he has a, a Chartered Institute of Marketing diploma. And so he delivers talks on work and workshops on marketing strategy and branding. So, James, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. So how do you use your design and marketing background in the work you do at Robot Mascot, James? Yeah. So, I mean, it's really that's the that's the thing that, that I think makes us special in, in what we do, because everyone else, if you think about people who, who do what we do, which is help people create financial projections, business plans, pitch decks for, for investment, tend to come from a finance background um, and they look at things through through that lens whereas we approach everything that we do through the lens of communication this is about making sure that your you know all of these assets your business plan your financials your pitch all of these are tools for selling a product and, and in this case the product is your shares you're trying to sell your shares in return for investment so we look through every uh, everything we create from the business plan through to the pitch deck even the spreadsheets as a, as a communication tool, as a piece of marketing collateral, as part of your, your campaign, and as part of your proposal for, for selling the shares in your business. And that's really what generates the success for our clients and means that you know, they're 40 times more likely to raise investment than the average uh, founder, because it's all through making sure that the, the investor gets it like straight away, it's kind of to the point and they can find everything they need to make that informed decision just like you would if you were doing any kind of B2B sales process. So yeah, it's, it's a real hybrid of understanding what investors want and the complexities around the kind of business strategy and financial strategy and, and marrying that with brand and communication and, and kind of marketing practices uh, to create what we've created at Robot Mascot. Right. And what sort of stage your business is at when they come to you? Yeah, so we tend to work with those raising their seed and series A rounds. So for those who don't uh, are, are maybe uh, so aware of the of the, the lingo there, that's that's people typically raising anything upwards of kind of three hundred k to as much as maybe three to five million. Um, we're working with a client right now who's raising a twenty million pound series A, so it can extend beyond that. But typically, we're looking at between three hundred k to 
to five million um, investment that you're looking to to seek as a as a typical client. Okay, so should they have a concept that's proven by the time they come to you? Yeah, I, ideally they have um, some level of traction, some level of of validation. Um, that being said, we work with people who are in the concept stage as well. Um, but yeah, ideally, if you're raising those sorts of figures, it tends to be that you have some level of validation. You don't have to have a product to market. You don't have to have paying customers on your platform or with your with your business. Um, but you might have a certain level of, of insight from the market that, that validates your concept. Um, right. We wouldn't typically be working with someone who's just come up with the idea. We actually have a, a separate kind of accelerator program we call the Pitch Ready Sprint for those people who are raising kind of less than 200K to kind of validate their concept. Um, but our core services are for those who've kind of been through that um, to a certain extent. Right, and who would you help with branding? for example? Yeah, so, so our branding services are something that we talk less about. Um, we tend to, um, that tends to come through referral and through through our reputation, but we typically are working with kind of B2B enterprise um, tech businesses. Um, so they, they tend to be, they tend to be slightly later stage. Um, they tend to have raised a, a decent seed round of, of investment. And now they're looking to create a brand that, that people want to buy from, a brand people want to work for, a brand that ultimately people want to acquire. Um, so they're really looking to level up their, their branding. That being said, we still have some clients who are in the earlier stages, but they know, you know, they're, they're a high, high-end piece of technology and they're selling this to a very small niche of clients, perhaps you know, the top kind of FTSE 100 companies or something like that. And, and therefore they have to get it right first time because they've got such a small pool of clients. If they get it wrong um, first time around, there's kind of no going back and they instantly have that, that reputation in quite a closed um, niche. So, so we do work with people who are at that earlier stage to make sure that, that it's, it's, um, it's perfect from, from day one. But yeah, um, typically within that kind of B2B enterprise tech space is kind of where we where we focus. So haven't they already sorted out their branding if they've got traction and they're larger? I would have thought that they have less need of it at that stage. To, no, they tend to have what we call, like we'd refer to as a startup brand, something that's been cobbled together to get their first however many users get their first kind of the MVP to market to start testing uh, the market. They maybe went on Upwork or Fiverr or got their mate to, to design their logo and they've, they've kind of it slowly evolved. And, and what they're really looking for is someone to bring it all together um, and look at the, the brand as a whole from kind of a positioning perspective uh, in the market, looking at the, the proposition, the language, the visual maybe a, a logo redesign or a development of what they've got to kind of push it forward a little bit, something that just ties the whole kind of wider brand ethos together, um, really. Yeah, I, I've recently written a book on branding and was quite surprised to find that, you know, designers and marketers received no training at all in intellectual property, which is so mm. fundamental, not just to brand names but to all the identifiers you might choose um, 
Did you receive any training in intellectual property during your studies? How, how was that for you? Yeah, um, not officially, not officially. There was no, no mention of it on the course itself. However, I do remember going to a, a, an additional lecture that was kind of put on by my university that was kind of optional and part of some kind of special week of events they were doing. And there happened to be someone there who was talking about IP um, in, in branding for about an hour. And it was something to do with, with Kodak and the value of their IP and, and some kind of infringement with Sony. I can't quite remember the full story, but that was my only exposure to the idea of protecting brands and, and IP more generally within kind of what you're creating, not just brands, but products as well. So, so yeah, not really. It's not really something that, that anyone talks about. It's all about the creativity and the idea and, and not at all about about mm. protecting it I, I was just kind of lucky to come across that yeah. and, and early enough to attend the extra le lectures I suppose <laughs> so do you ever choose names for any of your clients and how do you go about doing that uh, we don't tend to get involved too much in naming as I say most of our clients have already got that um, and they're pretty comfortable with the name that they've selected because they're already they're looking to tie everything together rather than create something from from scratch and the clients that do come to us for the sort of creating things from scratch tend to already have an idea on, on their name. What we typically do is suggest to them that they get that checked out by, a, by an IP lawyer before they start engaging us to go and create a load of assets around that name, which they may not be able to protect in the future. Now, some of our clients do follow that advice and others just go, oh, it's fine. We'll, we'll, we just need to get this brand out. We can't waste time with lawyers and, and just crack on. And, and mm. you, well, you know mm. how disastrous that could end up being. But unfortunately, that that's the gung-ho attitude that sometimes um, founders have towards, yeah. their, towards their IP. It's like, we'll worry about that later. We just need to get it to market now. And that could be very, very costly um, yeah. in the long run. Mm. And what about investors? How how much do they understand about IP and what interest do they take in it? Yeah, so from my perspective, I think that the investors, or my experience, the investors are looking, when they care about IP, I think it tends to be more around defensibility of the product that's being developed, um, the systems, the technology that's being being produced. I don't know if they worry so much about brand, although we often in the business plans we create will talk about what's being registered in terms of a trademark and that kind of thing, because we think it's, it's obviously that's important. But when I think investors care for it enough to know like that's being protected, great. Um, I don't think it would stop a deal going forward um, on the brand specific bit. They're more worried about the defensibility of the product and the technology, because that's the thing that really they see is is the you know you could rebrand if you needed to it may be expensive but you you could do that um at a series a series b stage if you had to what we really care about at the very earliest stage of the seed and series a rounds is the defensibility of the product more than more than anything else i would i would say um but yeah we, we always make sure that we explore with our clients what ip they have around their product but also their brand because I fundamentally believe that, that that is a extremely valuable asset in the business when it comes to the exit, mm. come the end of the 
end of the journey, you're, you're going to be in a position where you're valuing your, your brand, but also your tech and everything else. But just look at Apple, right? And, and how much just that logo on its own is worth and all of the systems, design systems and structures around it is yeah. worth a huge amount of money as well as all the technology they've developed. Um, same with Google, Facebook, these things are worth just on their own, just the, just the brand itself is, is worth a huge amount of money. So I don't think it's given the respect it deserves from, from either investors or, or founders. To be yeah, I, I find that people don't really understand how a name is a barrier to entry, that it can actually provide patent-like protection for a business that takes off, that's successful you know, because others can't use similar names. Uh, that counts for a lot. But, you know, when I talk about Clubcard, how Tesco managed to create this brand without actually having a name that's trademarkable, most people don't understand what a huge loss it is because they spend a million promoting loyalty cards and then everyone else can use the same name and say, uh, you know, yeah. Sainsbury's club card. And that means it's a huge loss, but people just yeah. don't get it that it's, no, you know. Not at all. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's lots of parts of a brand that, that add value. And, and you look at the, the brands that achieve the, the biggest exit multiples and there's fundamental truths across all of them. And yes, some of them are product-based and they've got great technology or, or a type of revenue model that means it's it's subscription based because you can get the highest exit multiples there but the other things that come into account are the the soft assets like brand systems and processes culture you know culture is part of brand right it's the, the way your the, the way your internal staff think and feel and act around your business is as much about brand as as your customers um act yeah. and feel and think about your business as well so it's a it's a it's a massively valuable asset in the yeah. business are you a designer or brand strategist if so register your interest in the new accreditation program we are developing over at brandtune.com Accreditation will equip you to make IP part of your brand strategy when creating new brands so you can make good decisions with more confidence and have a powerful way to differentiate yourself. There are links in the show notes to the blog IP Strategy is Part of Brand Strategy where there is more information. Well, brand covers so many things. There's one is sort of culture. Um, the IP side actually is just about the name and the identifiers because that's what contains the value. When, when a business goes into administration and sells its brands, invariably all it's selling is its trademarks and yeah. you know any other IP rights it might have protected. And there's nothing yeah. else really to show for it. Yeah. If, you know. And even if you're not thinking about exiting or, or administration, the value of your brand to, to expand your portfolio, think of Virgin mm. right, and how they can just sell that and stick it on, the, on a bottle of wine and suddenly yeah. you've got a new That's business right. worth 
Um, and that's everyone thinks that it's part of the Virgin Group, but it's but it's yeah. not. I'm not sure the state now but but it's i'm pretty sure it's not part of the the virgin group mm. and someone just licenses that brand off them um yeah. because it has so much kudos and credibility and you can suddenly start to build if you build a great brand and you want to do that you can suddenly build licensing deals mm. in across loads of different industries and you don't have to get your hands dirty building a whole new business you can just go here we go use my brand and and uh and pay me x millions a year for the use of it and and it's it's super valuable to have that yeah to have that of it because then it gives you all of those options all of those opportunities exactly Um, but i think people are not really alive to that they think okay a brand like virgin might be there but i'm little old me you know and they don't realize that if they're aspiring to be big they could become you know quite substantial in a few years time and therefore that brand absolutely and the crazy thing is is that our clients all have that vision they all have that dream the reason why they're raising Mm -hmm. money um is because they want to be the next uber the next airbnb the next facebook the next google um and you can you know and i know they've got lots to do and lots of things to spend their money on um and there's so many priorities that are conflicting but it's not that, you know, it's pretty inexpensive in comparison to building their technology to protect their brand. Um, well, yes, and- I mean, it's basically the name shouldn't be taken for granted because everything a business does is to generate name recognition. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, once, you know, once you've started to build that recognition, right, and you you you've got your MVP, you've got your first loyal customers and you could rebrand. Yeah. And, and it wouldn't, you know, but it starts to get so intrinsically that the more you develop stuff and the bigger you get them, the more that brand gets intrinsically linked into, um, into what you do. And then suddenly it's like a massive pain to change it if you need to, because it's, oh, yeah. it's in place. You don't even remember, you know, it's not just updating the website or, or what it's, mm-hmm. it's on every input it's on every email communication it's on all of these documents that you've you just send out and don't even think about and all of yeah. a sudden you think well there is so much here to do to change this across the organization we've got 50 mm-hmm. people you know now working for us and there's all this stuff going in and out of the business with our with our yeah. brand on it and the idea of then changing it at that later date is yeah is actually puts a lot of people off rebranding um because yeah. there's so much stuff that has to change um, yeah, and that's where it becomes really, really costly. Um, at well, a later that's, date. that's the obvious cost, but then there's the cost of buyers forgetting you because you had some sort of recognition yeah. in the market, and yeah. you vanish if you have to start yeah. with a new name. So yeah, there's. I'm trying to think of some examples now, but there's there's loads of examples. There's examples where people have, have gone back as well. Not necessarily changing their brand name, but just changing their look. Like Gap did it a few years yeah. ago, didn't they? Probably about eight years ago now. They did a, they didn't change their name, they just changed to a whole new look and the market hated it. And they yeah. spent all of this money on on rebranding. They updated all of their storefronts and everything. And then the market didn't like it and they had to change it back again. Wow. Um yeah. really costly mistake for for getting that getting that wrong. But yeah, yeah, you Monzo is a, an example. They they changed. I can't remember what they were called before, but I think they were they called just, Mondo initially. Mondo, that's it. So it wasn't I'm a big enough. They managed change. to just change to Monzo, but 
yeah um so but they did it early enough in their journey that that they kind of got away with it because they were just then starting to hit that scale up phase and i think that's why a lot of clients come to us at that kind of series a we're now looking to align everything and get everything done properly because we've got our first early adopters and we maybe have got a few hundred or a few thousand users we don't want to carry on with a brand that may not be fit for purpose for the next five years as we're starting to now really get traction we've just raised three million quid we're now pushing on to get a million customers the thought of having to do the brand thing then is terrifying let's make sure we get everything our ducks in a row now so then yeah. we can push on and don't have to worry about that for the next five years as mm -hmm. we build that reputation in the wider market yeah. and start to scale um, and i think that's why what we do comes at that point because you can kind of blag it for the first first little bit when you're yeah. just doing feasibility studies and, and getting it off the ground mm -hmm. but once you raise that kind of two three four million pound yeah. round to really go and ramp this up and and get your sort of million users or get yourself to to a million revenue or or, or more um yeah. that's when it starts to get really serious and and it's yeah, no yeah. longer just a feasibility study it's this is a business that's scaling now and it's going to be huge um, yeah. if we play our cards right well i think in anything you have to build on solid foundations so tell me are you generally dealing with tech companies or what sort of businesses are they that you help yes yeah, so when it comes to our investment services and helping people um, raise capital it tends to be pretty broad um, most of our businesses are involved in some kind of technology but we're, we're working with restaurants at the moment we're working with um service-based companies that are, that are you know one of them's like a translator for for um audio descriptions and that kind of thing for kind of netflix and amazon and they they kind of do do a lot of the the audio captions and that kind of thing so so they're more of a service-based company so yeah real a real mix but yeah i would say about 80 percent are in in the tech space um and and the rest are kind of something else uh in, a, in another niche um yeah. looking to to scale their business so why why do you call your business um, what what is it a pitch pitch agency? So that that's our niche. Um, we're so we're recognised pitch. Or... Yeah, we're we're recognised as the UK's leading pitch agency because we're best known for creating pitch decks that that convince investors. Um, that's that's where we started. Um, in order to create pitch decks that convince investors, we have to start right back at the business plan and the financials and make sure that they're that this pitch has an underlying kind of story that that can hold up to investor scrutiny otherwise you're going to pitch really well and investors going to be like wow this sounds awesome and then the deal's never going to happen because they do all their due diligence the numbers and the strategy all falls down so but at the front end what people know about us or, or we're best known for is creating pitch decks that excite investors um so so yeah we're, we're a, a pitch agency first and foremost it's about communication around around um mm -hmm. investment and, and that extends back to all of the stuff you need after that pitch but but right. the, it's just the first so thing is, that are you as more like a consultancy do you actually do research for people and and generally sort out their business plan for them how, how yeah, so, yeah so we're a done for you um done for you service that, that take a client we put them through our, our unique process we've got an online platform that helps them with their strategic thinking 
take all that information um, uh, that we've guided them to, to produce and we turn that kind of raw rough um, data and we, we turn it into business plans, financial projections, pitch materials. And, and we've got a team of business strategists, uh, financial strategists, um, copywriters, designers who, who work together as a team to produce all those assets for our for our clients. Um, okay. So, yeah, we, it's, the idea with Robot Mascot is you come to us, brain dump everything about your business and kind of how you, what your hopes and dreams and plans are for, for this for this uh, venture. And then we turn that into these, what I call the critical fundraising assets that you need to go in and run a successful um, investment campaign. So, so, yeah. Might you turn people away if you don't think that their business is going to really be investable or what? Absolutely. How, yeah. Yeah. So we have a, we, we have quite a process that our clients have to go through to, to get to us. We must generate around between 200 and 300 leads a month and we end up working with about eight to ten of them um because they're suitable so there's people that they're too early stage or they haven't got enough traction or validation yet um but they go through this process they create they take a scorecard which gives them a good idea of where they're and us a good idea of where they're at so there's this initial kind of quiz to find out kind of where they are and whether or not they're suitable there's then a two-hour strategy session where they learn about how we approach things and they can start to decide for themselves whether or not we're potentially the right fit. They know whether they fit our, our criteria. Um, then they do an eligibility assessment. If they're still interested in working with us, there's an eligibility assessment, which again, makes sure that they hit certain criteria. And then finally, there's a one-to-one -one interview with, with myself usually to make sure that they are the right type of client for us and, and once they've been through that it means we're working with the right people with the right foundations in place to make sure that that what we do is actually going to add a huge amount of value because the last thing we want to do is charge someone to to use our services and it turns out that they've just had this idea the other week in the pub with their mates and there's no substance sure. to it right because there's yeah. no point then they're not ready yet mm. so, so yeah there's a big so big pro so for seed funding, um, a business, uh, how, what sort of investment do they need to put into using help to get to raise seed funding? Sorry, how much? What sort of investment do they need to put into having your help to get seed funding? Yeah, so, so our seed clients pay anything between uh, four grand and 16 grand, depending on what their requirements are. Um, the most popular package is, is around eight grand. Um, and that's delivering those, that, that's delivering the majority of those critical fundraising assets I talked about. So, but it really depends on kind of where they're at, but, but yeah, that's the typical, typical range for, for seed clients. And how um, do you have people that you feel this is going to be an ideal investment for you? you know, that you can approach investors who you think would be really interested in a particular type of opportunity or how do you find investors? Yeah. So we're always clear to say that we're not a brokerage. Um, we, we, of course, have a network of, of investors and part of, of the sort of value we add to our clients is that we've got a database and network of over 300 investors that collectively invest 800 million or so a year into businesses ranging from angels to VCs to family offices across loads of different sectors. 
what we don't do as a as an agency is we're not a broker and we're not picking up the phone to every single one of them and brokering the deal um for a couple of reasons one that's just not us that's not our our expertise we're, we're about the communication and the campaign assets um and secondly really at a seed stage you should be as a founder out there talking to the investors yourself it's not until you get to that kind of vc investment where you're raising three million or more that brokerage really works as a model um, and anyone who's trying to offer seed stage brokering services in in my experience ends up kind of going there's a big gap in the market no one's offering brokering services for for seed clients and within six months you go and try and send a client their way and they say oh no I'm not doing seed anymore I'm only doing um, venture deals of three million or more because they soon realize it's exactly the same amount of work Mm, but one percent of three million is much more than one percent of 300k and it's exactly the same amount of work so it's very difficult to find a profitable way as a business to operate a brokerage for, for seed. So we don't do it um, for that reason. And we'd much rather give advice, support, campaign assets to help a founder effectively approach angel investors themselves, approach angel groups, give lists of uh, funds and angel groups that they could approach. Oh, you give some lists and then prepare. So we, yeah, one, of our, one of our services is uh, involves campaign support in terms of giving them the tools and the assets and the strategies they need to go and run this campaign themselves Mm. um, because we feel that's the best way and to be honest angel investors want to see the founder getting out there and pushing their business in the early stages they don't really want to be approached by a broker representing you they they, there's just a a a kind of feeling that that you're you're not really as involved in this business as perhaps you should be um, as a founder. So yeah, for a seed stage, it doesn't really work. Um, It does at a later stage. So for us, it's more about preparing a founder with those assets, giving them access to our network and kind of sending out an email saying, look, here's here's one of our clients. Are you you interested in getting in touch with them? Doing some promotion to our network on LinkedIn and giving them the campaign tools and assets and knowledge they need to, to go and meet investors um sure. that, that works much better um than, so than you trying to do them to go out and yeah opportunities to yeah you know this this is as much going through one of our programs is as much about us creating these assets for a founder as it is preparing them mentally mm-hmm. um for their investment campaign getting them, you know, the, the whole point of that strategic planning tool I mentioned at the very beginning of the project, it's almost like it's a dry run of all the things an investor is going to ask you as soon as you get into that, past that pitch stage and into that second and third meeting in the due diligence process. They're going to want to know all this stuff. If you if you can't tell us about it, then we need to, we need to help identify the gaps you have, the red flags that would come up and work with you through our process to fill those gaps. And, and so it's as much about developing you as an individual to prepare yourself for what's going to happen as soon as you start talking to investors, as it is actually the production of these assets. You could almost say that the production of these assets are a byproduct of us supporting you to, to become an investable entrepreneur, as I, as I would say, um, and, and kind of develop you to be investor ready. So are they um, generally, what sort of age are is your typical client? Are they male, uh, young, you know? Um, so typically our clients are over 35 they have 
um, five to 10 years industry experience, either as a founder of another company, um, and this they're, they've, they're probably running a consultancy, and they've said they've seen an opportunity to create a piece of technology that would which would completely change the landscape of their of their niche and their industry and um, they're in the perfect position um, they've maybe developed something in a small way to to help systemize their business and they now want to they now want to scale this up and create something for the whole industry to use um, and they're sort of pivoting out um, or they've got kind of five to ten years experience at a, a kind of top level position in a corporate um, spotted an opportunity in that kind of enterprise space um, to really change the game um, and they've they've quit that job and they've started this startup to um, follow that kind of passion that dream of, of creating something themselves in an area that they know really really well um, so that that's fairly a typical kind of client of ours um, are they male, male or female, female? Um, yeah there's there's probably more more males than females but I'd say about 60 40 um, we, we end up working with quite a, quite a lot of female entrepreneurs um, through through this process. So, right. so well, yeah. I, I read somewhere that ninety percent of new products fail because mainly because they're not properly researched and the market need isn't properly understood and people just launch into creating something. Mm. How do you yeah. help people to ensure? they're not one of the 90% that will fail. Yeah. Um, so we tend, part of our process is, is identifying that. We tend to work with people who have already got a certain level of validation mm. and if they're raising at the smaller end of what we cater for than, than perhaps it's normally to, they've got a certain level of validation. This is to build their proof of concept or their MVP to go and get more validation and they know the risks, the, the investors know the risks at, at that level. Um, if they're earlier than that, and it is very much in the concept stage, I'd be I'd be suggesting that they go on our pitch ready sprint because there's a whole part of the the pre work module um, that that is like the first week of that program, and there's a whole bit about how to validate your ideas, the four different areas for validation, different tactics and approach you would you would use to 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 validate your idea sufficiently so that you can raise up to 200k to build your first kind of proof of concept and start to validate that even further um so it's all about stepping cool. stones a lot of founders um in my experience will who, who haven't been in this world will kind of see these big numbers thrown around if so-and-so has just raised 10 million for their business and they kind of think i've got a great idea i can raise 10 million for that as well and, and you're much better off saying i need 50 to 80k to build a proof of concept so I can go and test this on a yeah. thousand people and then we can take that information and we can decide what's working what's what isn't working um, and then we can go and raise 200k to to do yeah. the next version of the product and, and get to maybe 10,000 users or, or whatever then go and raise mm. a million then go and raise 5 million then go and raise 20 million mm. rather than just try and do it all in one go. So the, the initial stages, it's kind of baby steps under 150, 200K um, to begin mm. with, then around about 500K to a million. Mm. And then about two to 5 million after that is, is fairly typical. Mm. That changes massively for different sectors. We just had a client in the fintech space, the financial technology yeah. space, who closed um, their what's known as a pre-seed round that that would typically be around 200k or less, they just closed their round for 750k 
with no product, just research, desk research, validation, primary research and surveys, a sort of a very basic prototype that was like a clickable design. No more than that, because it's such a hot space and they've got a great team with great experience and, and they managed to attract with the assets we created for them, some of the top European VCs to come and invest in, in a deal that's quite unusual for them. They'd normally be looking at something a bit later mm. stage and, and they've got a huge amount of money mm. for the level of the level of, of stage they're at um, because that sector is so hot because they had all the assets in place and, and the investors could see how awesome the opportunity was. Mm. So there's always exceptions that break the rules. Cool. So is this your only business? Aren't you tempted sometimes to create you know a product or something and raise investment and yeah. how much you know about it <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's definitely probably in my future i'm just loving doing this right now um i've got a young family um a three-year-old and a five-month-old so oh. you know, my time is is yeah. precious and i don't want to miss them growing up because i'm i'm off trying to create a global empire so cool. i'm loving doing this i'm loving scaling robot mascot i love working with really awesome founders mm. um getting all of this experience from from yeah. them as well and and yeah i think probably when the kids are a bit older and a bit more independent there's probably a a part of me that would love to go and yeah. to go and do that um with the right idea the right founding team um so yeah i think robot mascot is a is a stepping stone in my mm. my career i'm sure um but um when that will be will be when the time's right on a personal yeah. personal level yeah i just love That's doing what exciting. i'm doing right now yes. you'll have so much expertise if you do do that yeah and, and yeah. you know one of the best ways um to to grow a business or create a uh, one of these big scalable kind of tech companies is to get your get a load of experience doing a kind of a consultancy type business first you learn so much you know the first three four years of robot mascot were pretty much disastrous you know there's nothing really happening and you know you're kind of constantly kind of battling but yeah. all of that experience means that we can launch new products within within months and they're a success and we've got that experience now that we can yeah. that we wouldn't have had if we tried to do that with with someone else's money and would have completely cool. wasted their money and would have been one of those failures um on on the list so sometimes it's better to that's part of the reason why, you know, the founders that we work with tend to be 35 or over. They've got quite a lot of, of life experience behind them, which gives them a, a better perspective on things as well. So what happened uh, to help you to succeed at Robot Mascot? You say it was difficult in the first few years. What changed? Uh, we brought on board an awesome advisor, um, a guy that you know very well called Daniel Priestley. Oh, really? Um, yeah, so he um, he's a shareholder in Robot Mascot, and um, that that really helped us um, have someone with experience who'd made you know multi million pound businesses in 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 the more specifically in the in the service industry to mm -hmm. to really help guide us through. And there's a lot to be said about having the right advisory team yeah. around you. So so those sorts of things absolutely. Um, helped. The other thing was niching, being comfortable to niche. And, and that can be really scary when you first start a, a business. We started off as this kind of generic branding agency. We did some TV campaigns, um, you know, TV really? ads. We, yeah, we'd done radio ads. We did <laughs> brochures and logos. And we were just like, yeah, we can do that stuff. All because over the we place. Can. Yeah. But it was just kind of, there was no real focus. And once we realized 
you know, about um, two, three years in, mm. we had some advisors who were also angel investors. We had some clients that were startups that we did their branding for, and they were starting to say, can you help us with our pitch? Um, so we did that pitch for them. Um, our advisors who are angel investors were like, wow, this is amazing. If you could if you could package that somehow and turn it into a, a service that you that you offer mm-hmm. for every founder, because compared to what we get sent in our inbox every day, um, your stuff is just exactly what we need. That's what we're looking for. So it kind of gave us this idea that there was something there. There was a massive mm-hmm. problem to be solved. So I spent 12 to 18 months really researching that, took myself out of the branding business. Nick, my, my co-founder, focused on the branding stuff, and I went and, and researched and really got to understand the, the the investment side of things. Nick had attended a few tech events to explore it as well and spotted the opportunity himself as well and sort of came back to me excitedly going, there really is something here, James, we should we should do this. Mm-hmm. So I, I went off and did the research, ended up with the book and, and kind of really niching the business into this, into this kind of specialist communications agency to help founders communicate their ideas to, mm-hmm. to investors. And, and that niching has just given us um, it attracted people like Daniel Priestley to come and mentor us. And, and it really, really helped us kind of push on. So, so yeah, that, that's, that's yeah. probably been the secret is to not be afraid to, to mm. niche and become the expert in one small thing, um, which actually turns out to be one big thing. Once you, <laughs> once you yeah. get it right, there's you know, more people out there to, to help yeah. than we could possibly manage. Yeah. So yeah, that would be the secret. So before we finish, um, just is there one piece of advice you would give to a, a founder who wants to grow something big? I mean, what's the one piece of advice you would give? Oh, one piece of advice. Really get to understand. But if you're looking for investment, are we talking about a founder that's looking for, for investment? Well, they've right? got a big idea. So at some yeah. point. So if you're if you're looking to seek investment, my my biggest advice is it's really you've spent your whole life and your whole whole journey in your business so far, really getting to understand the problems of your of your audience and the wants and needs of the audience you're selling your product to. If you want to go and raise investment, you need to spend just as much time and effort understanding the problems and the wants and needs of the audience you're going to be selling your shares to, and really understand what it is that an invest makes an investor tick. What are they looking for? What ticks their boxes? What makes them say yes to a deal? What are they really, really looking for? Um, and that's kind of what my book covers and what my book talks about. But but so many founders struggle with the whole investor communication thing because they failed to realize, they see it as giving away shares, right? I'm going to give away shares. Someone's going to see this awesome idea and they're going to give me some money. It, there's so many things that investors are, uh, are looking for um, to satisfy their their requirements to make an investment that founders just don't talk about. And that's why so many fail to raise investments. So mm. become an expert in your, in your, the audience you're selling your product to, but also become an expert in, in the, the audience you're going to be selling your shares to as well would be. Would that's be excellent advice. We'll add your book into the show notes as well. So that awesome. this can read it. Well, thank you very much indeed, James. That was great. Having you're very you. welcome. All right, then. Bye. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. Take the Brand Tune scorecard 
to find out if you're the go-to first choice brand for your ideal customers. The results will highlight the areas where you're already strong and those where you need to improve.